This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is also sponsored by our Patreon supporters. Jessica Smith, Rachel Kay, Jan Elise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Carla Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Ellie McDonald, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Lisa Acoin, Lauren McAtee, Rue Doragon, and Rachel Tiven. Huge thanks to all our patrons. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. It seems pretty obvious that forensics mm. is one of the most popular topics in modern U.S. <laughs> crime media media in general absolutely every cop tv show every law tv show every true crime podcast it seems like they are never ending but who started it uh agatha christie (laughs) (laughs) well poirot didn't know the first thing about forensics he poo-pooed forensics (gasps) did he he didn't need any such silly things as evidence (laughs) (laughs) he just needed his little gray cells i see (laughs) but sherlock holmes was all about oh there you go forensics right right right. Uh, i think a lot of people know the inspiration for sherlock holmes was actually one of arthur conan doyle's med school professors Uh named dr joseph bell who really did sort of invent forensic medicine okay But that's a long way to go from 19th century Edinburgh Mm -hmm. to 21st century United States. Okay. So how did it get to CSI Miami? Mm. Science. Science. (laughs) Science, yes. But who convinced people that the science was important? Good point. Like, who convinced people that medical experts could contribute to law enforcement and more specifically who convinced u.s law enforcement that this was worth pursuing i imagine you're going to tell me it's a woman yes hey which is already kind of surprising very yep but i think you may be surprised to learn that the person who is almost entirely responsible for bringing modern forensic medicine to the united states was a 52-year-old socialite from Chicago. Yay! Well, that's delightful. With no medical training of any kind. How? And no involvement in the subject previously Uh. before she made this her (laughs) life's work. Cool! (laughs) It's incredible. I love it already. (laughs) And a passionate dedication to justice led her into this work. And her methods for passing on this knowledge and skill set are so unusual and so creative in the literal sense of the word Hmm. that I immediately knew we had to do an episode on her. Cool. And when I tell you that she used dollhouse rooms to train multiple generations of law enforcement, 
I think what? you'll know why she's made my list of my very favorite historical women of all time. Wow, for real? For real. <gasps> Her name was Frances Glessner Lee, and she is the mother of modern forensic pathology. Wow. Never heard of her. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Now, I first discovered Frances Glessner Lee in this totally fascinating book called 18 Tiny Deaths <laughs> by Bruce Goldfarb. It's called Unexplained Deaths in the UK. Oh, is that the book that you were compulsively reading while we were on our What's-Her-Name England tour? It is, yes. <laughs> the one that anytime we had free time, I was right. frantically getting another chapter. Cool. Yes, it's that good. It's a completely fascinating biography and more hmm? of this incredible woman and her most famous project... The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a charming children's novel. Yes, it sounds to me like a a Neil Gaiman, Gris Grimley exactly. collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. I'd read it. Bruce Goldfarb is the curator of the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, which are at the Chief Medical Examiner's Office in Baltimore, Maryland. Curator, uh, what is this thing? The nut, it's a physical thing? Patience. Wow. I want to be the nut curator of the nutshell studies of 18... Oh, it's the it's the greatest title ever. Yeah. But it's, it's only a little bit of what he does. <sighs> My name is Bruce Goldfarb. I'm author of 18 Tiny Deaths, the biography of Francis Glessner Lee. And my day job is executive assistant to the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. I kept coming back to the nutshells. People would want me to arrange a visit. I'd return uh, several times and they got to know me there by face. And as one of these regulars who was annoying people at the medical examiner's office, flash forward many years later in 2012, I was with a group of editors and arranged for a tour for this new, brand new, state-of-the-art forensic medical center. And um, while we're on the tour, my friend, Mike Eagle, said that uh, they had this opening for a public information officer, an executive assistant for the chief, and they wanted somebody with a medical background and writing experience, and it was uh, just absolutely made for me. It was a custom fit, so I got the job. Once I started at the OCME, Jerry D, who is the keeper of the Nutshell Secrets, literally threw the keys at me and said, they're your problem now. You can take care of them. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to really get to know them inside and out and peek around inside the cabinets. And, you know, the more I learned about her, the more interested I was. And it was just obvious that there was a need for somebody to tell her story. This is now on top of my bucket list to go and visit to these. see these nutshells. The nutshell studies. Okay, <laughs> but what are they? Yes. You ask. <laughs> I am picturing. I honestly, I'm picturing like Tasha Tudor. I've got like charming little mice nestled in nutshells on you know the night before <laughs> Christmas. That's that's what I've got. Or like a dollhouse made of nuts. 
Is that they are they're not that. They are dollhouses. Okay. They are dollhouse rooms like no dollhouse rooms you've ever seen before. Okay. No actual nutshells. No actual nutshells involved. It's too late. It's going to be nutshell in my mind forever, and I'm loving it. <laughs> Tasha Tudor would be horrified by these. <laughs> but let's start at the beginning. Okay. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Frances Glessner was the daughter of John Glessner, who was a wealthy industrialist with International Harvester, ah. which was one of the main tractor manufacturers in the 19th century. His wife, Frances Macbeth Glessner, Frances Glessner's mother, was quite accomplished in her own right. And she was a jewelry maker and a silversmith and raised bees. The entire family was steeped in culture and the arts. They were big supporters uh, of the Chicago Art Institute and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. She had one sibling. She had one brother, George, and it was just the two of them. And they were one of the leading families of Chicago in the late 19th century. Ooh, what a time to be a leading family in Chicago. Yes, exactly. Where that is the, mm. the place to be, Absolutely. one of the leading families. World's Fair and all. The sunny street of the sifted few huh. was, wow. as they refer to, the street where the very chosen got to live. Wow. That is where Frances Glessner grew up. Okay. In a very weird house, which is now a museum, which is also on my list. All of the other mansions built on this street were, of course the height of Victorian prosperity, showy fronts, mm. all of your wealth visible from the front door. Okay. This is a bizarre, almost blank brick wall. Um, we'll have pictures of it. It's very imposing, unimpressive frontage. Weird. With tiny little doors, tiny little windows that open into the most incredible mansion you've ever seen inside. What? John Glessner built it. It was incredibly scandalous. Okay. Everyone hated it. Huh. But he was very dedicated to all things new. He did not want anything old-fashioned or traditional. Huh. And so he hired the up-and-coming new young American architect, Henry Hobson Richardson, oh. to build this bizarre mansion in 1887. So is that why it's a museum? For the architecture? For the architecture and for the family who were a big deal on their own. Okay. So you can still go and visit the Glessner House Museum. I want to go. I am so mad. I do know how much time I've spent in Chicago and never knew this was here. Yeah. The parents were very dedicated to education for their children at home. So neither Frances nor her brother George ever set foot in a school their teachers were brought to them. Of course. They were homeschooled by tutors and trained in the natural sciences and culture and music and the arts and languages and uh, had a, were given an extraordinary education. Frances, very unusually for her time, was encouraged to pursue her interest in any field, Chemistry, languages, music, art. She was fluent in German, French, Latin. She was a gifted needleworker. She is given not just the skills of a leading hostess, the lady skills, but she's encouraged to pursue her interest in science, in history, in anything that she finds interesting. (laughs) But she has no formal qualifications. She's never been to school. 
Her role is to get married well, have children, and carry on the family's good, big name. Yeah. But she was an incredibly talented artist, and you can see from a very young age the talent and the yearning to do something, to make an impact in the world. She doesn't just want to be the rich socialite. She wants to make something meaningful. <laughs> you can also see from a young age the dedication to create totally perfect works of art. Obsessive levels of detail and precision. The amount of time that she is willing to spend on things is bananas. Huh. For example... In 1912, she constructed the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra in miniature in a scale of one inch to one foot. 90 pieces. She did each one wearing evening wear and did their instruments and just this amazing display. Uh. <laughs> she created 90 individual models. Wow. With accurate hair, facial hair, each, each one individual recognizable. Wow. She hand-stitched 90 tiny tuxedos. No way. She handmade tiny paper carnations to put in the buttonhole. Oh my gosh. She made the instruments out of wooden candy boxes and anything she could find. The conductor of the actual orchestra hand-wrote a tiny sheet of sheet music for each music stand. No. Of her mother's favorite <gasps> piece. Amazing. For the scale of this thing, the stage that this model sits on is eight feet long. <laughs> this is a massive <laughs> undertaking. And this was a birthday present. <laughs> this is also a foreshadowing of things to come. She wanted to do something and she really wanted a way of expressing the artistic thing, the the social value. During World War One, of course, there's lots of philanthropic efforts going on by the wealthy women in Chicago. And she announces that there will be a performance of the Fingertip Theater fundraiser for the fatherless children of France. They arrive to a tiny stage positioned in a doorway. Bruce Goldfarb reproduces a lot of the program in the book. It is the most amazing thing you've ever read. The first item on the program was the Scourge de Ballet Russe. Incomprehensible word that doesn't exist in real life. Also, Charlotte Russe, champion glacé skater of the world. The program also includes the dazzling flame dancer Luciola and Mademoiselle Salpovska and her Arabian charger Perpetuum Mobile. It features the smallest show on earth, the amalgamated and consolidated circus company of Kalamazoo and Oshkosh, <laughs> with Elmer, the smallest trained pachyderm in captivity. What? And sensational slack wire artist, Signor Centrifugo. Okay. And the curtain rises to show Francis's fingers <laughs> performing in a variety of hand-sewn costumes with handmade sets, <laughs> performing these incredibly elaborate finger puppet shows, <laughs> ballets, circuses, 
high wire acts <laughs> apparently incredibly amazing not just funny this isn't just a joke yeah this is real she is really <laughs> performing these things that are like moving audiences to tears wow. with her fingers <laughs> she has hand sewn hundreds of costumes for her hands amazing it was so delightful the newspapers absolutely freaked out and she performed it every day for weeks because it was completely sold out <laughs> wow she has created this entirely new hilariously unique art form mm. with clearly hundreds of hours of work going into this i love it she could have just thrown a wine and cheese party <laughs> and raised money right yeah. she could have just done a socialite sure. thing <laughs> She wants to make something. She, You can feel that urge to do something new, to mm. do something meaningful. Mm -hmm. But as she grows into a lovely young woman, she's following that trajectory. She married briefly. It didn't stick. She married an attorney by the name of Blewett Lee. They were married for, I don't know, seven years or so. They had three children and uh, they divorced. And she remained unmarried for the rest of her life. That's scandal back then. It's huge scandal. And Frances believed that her family was siding with her husband and sort of blaming her mm -hmm. for the failure of the marriage. So she is sort of permanently estranged from her family. They still see one another, but she's never close to her parents again. And she is really very alone hmm. and really unhappy. As World War I ends, she moves to Boston and opens a serviceman's home in Boston where all the soldiers returning from the war can stay until they return home or find jobs or decide what they want to do with their lives. Over 1,200 men go through this home Dang. while she is in charge of it. Doing the first real job of her life at 40 years old. Cool. Now, this is her first taste of, you know, really choosing for herself, making a life for herself. It's also a very important move to Boston, where her son is at Harvard, which will become a central point for the rest of her life. Her family has always been a major donor to Harvard. She also now has become a major donor to Harvard and to other local charities and organizations. Now in Boston, she is near her brother, George, and she is spending a lot of time with George and with his best friend, George McGrath, who he had met at college and have been very close friends with ever since. And she finds these conversations completely fascinating, especially his stories in his new work as medical examiner for Suffolk County. Oh. George Burgess McGrath was actually the first pathologist to serve as a medical examiner. He was literally America's first forensic pathologist. The entire U.S. is under a coroner system for investigations of suspicious deaths. What this means, essentially, is that the medical examiner, if there is one, there usually isn't, doesn't get to decide if an autopsy should be performed. 
And the medical examiner doesn't get to get involved at all until someone else has determined that that this death may be supposed to be by violence, is the official term. What that means, or who does the supposing, is never laid out. Hmm. In reality, what it means is that the coroner, who is an elected or appointed official, who usually has absolutely no medical experience whatsoever, mm -hmm. they have absolutely no idea how to do any sort of investigation, and they are the ones making those decisions. And nobody has any training in what to look for in crime scenes at all. No one is trained in how to examine a crime scene. In the 20s? In the 20s, which is shocking yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, knowing like the establishment of Scotland Yard in the 1800s and... Yes, well, the I guess... U.S. is decades behind, <laughs> almost a century behind on a lot of this. Interesting. And not just this, there is no way to learn how to do this work. James McGrath actively wants to learn how to be better at crime scene investigation, mm -hmm. at what at that point is called legal medicine, doing autopsies to determine cause of death. And there's nowhere for him to learn it. When he got the job in 1907, he realized that he was ill-equipped for the job. There was nowhere to be trained as a medical examiner. And so he went to Europe to learn at what was then the, the capitals of legal medicine in Europe. He learned in Edinburgh and Vienna and Paris, London, and learned about the scientific principles of death investigation. And he brought them back to the United States and incorporated that into his work as a medical examiner. And he also lectured to medical students at Harvard Medical School. So he was the first to introduce these principles of uh, scientific death investigation and really pretty much established the field. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. And then in 1929, George Burgess McGrath and she were both hospitalized at the same time. They are spending most of their time together talking about his work. She is completely fascinated by it. She wants to know everything. And he is venting his frustrations, but also telling her some of his best stories about, you know, the the murders he's uncovered or the things he proved weren't murder mm. and saved lives. And she is just absolutely captivated with all of this. And one of his main concerns is explaining to her how difficult it is to get a jury to understand the scene with just photographs or drawings, how he is making these deductions uh -huh. because there's no way to show them the crime scene. Hmm. And Frances Lee thinks back to, of course, all of her right. her goes, model orchestra. Could you her... make them finger puppets? <laughs> <laughs> Said, what if you had a model? What if you brought in a model of the crime scene to show the jury? James McGrath is a little dismissive of the ideas. 
Frankly, they won't even let me bring in photographs half the time. I don't think they would ever let me do that, but let me think about it. Nothing ever comes of it, but the seed is sown. And in one of the most important conversations of her life, and his, George McGrath made this offhand comment, the organs of the human body are the most decorative objects, and would just be lovely in a mural or some piece of art to hang in a doctor's office or something. And that just triggered something in her mind and led her on this extraordinary journey. It led her towards this realization that she had a purpose. It was such a, a sublime discovery. She actually documented the moment that changed her life. And that's what it was, was this offhand comments about the beauty of the human organs. I can kind of see that, right? Like the, there's this, been this wall for her as a woman of what she's allowed to do or what she's supposed to do. And, and suddenly when anatomy is art and art is a thing she does, yep. now the door opens and she is allowed to think about it and start to pay attention to it. And suddenly the rabbit hole opens in front of her and she has the rest of her life, right? To just dive into this entirely new, totally consuming passion that, that she didn't even have access to before. That's very interesting. And I never had that insight before. I wish we'd had this conversation three years ago because I really, really would have worked that into the book. But the, the whole <laughs> idea that the art was that door that led her into it. Uh, that's, that's an interesting insight. A door opens and she is able to imagine a different life for herself. Women are allowed to do art. Yeah. Women are allowed to be interested in art. And if the human body is art, if organs are art, yeah. then, then she, can she do is it. allowed to do it. Mm. And from this moment, the rest of her life stretches out in front of her. She was interested in how serious these subjects were. I mean, you're really talking about life and death and justice. And these were things that, you know, how different it is from her usual conversations. It's not at all sure that James McGrath is going to recover from this infection that he is in the hospital for. And he's getting really concerned. He's telling her, I have all of this knowledge. I have done so many years of work and research and, you know, traveling to all these places and figuring out this way to do this work. And all of that knowledge dies with me. No one else cares. No one else knows how to do it. And, and I don't know how to pass this knowledge on. And Francis, ever practical, says, well, what, what do you want? What would you want? And he's sort of fantasizing. He says, well, I've been thinking for years, you know, a department of legal medicine. Yeah. You could have a big library and you could have a lab and you could train the whole next generation of police officers and medical examiners and you could teach people how to do this. But there's no way. I mean, I've thought about it for years. There's no way to make that happen. It will never happen. It's an impossible dream. And Francis says, well, hold on. Let me get some paper. Let me write this down. 
She starts outlining what he thinks would make a difference, how they could save the world with this. Because uh, she knows that she absolutely can make this happen. Yeah. She has the International Harvester Fortune in her pocket. And she knows fully well how effective money is at convincing people that you're right. (laughs) She's never under any illusions about why she is able to make things happen or what her responsibilities are, maybe, in the world. Mm -hmm. She was talking to a reporter very early in her life as a young woman said, I didn't do a lick of work to deserve what I have. I feel I've been left with an obligation to do something that will benefit everybody. I feel that I must justify my reason for being here. Ooh. She mm-hmm. she was not under the mistaken assumption that she had the things that she had because she earned them. Yeah. Right? She knew yep. just how much dumb luck went into her position in life. And she knew that money moved mountains, and so it was her responsibility to move them the right way. As they both leave the hospital, she is single-minded in the pursuit of this. She starts attending James McGrath's autopsies. He's training her in forensic medicine. She's his first student. She is completely immersed in this, and she has all the background training from all of her own studies. She's just never gotten a degree, but she is suddenly completely immersed in this science she wants to see firsthand she wants to understand and this work is going to consume the rest of her life and nobody else was doing it and because nobody else is doing it i I don't think you're gonna get the same disapproval nobody had done it so there's really no way of knowing what was right or wrong there really was no template there was no uh, there's no nobody else to compare it to no way of knowing if this is appropriate or inappropriate for anybody. She takes that outline she wrote down in the hospital, begins planning out what will actually be needed. How can they make this happen? And in 1936, she sends a proposal to the Harvard Medical School that she will donate $250,000, which is about $4 million now, to create a Department of Legal Medicine, wow. which will be headed by James McGrath. She will leave another $250,000 in her will to Harvard (laughs) to carry on the project after she dies. And actually, she left a million dollars after telling them she would leave $250,000. So that's about $15 million. Wow. She will also pay McGrath's salary for his life and for a secretary and a librarian for the department. And her only requirements are that she must remain anonymous until she says so. Hmm. And the department must be named after McGrath or honor McGrath in some way of their choosing. So the library becomes the James McGrath Library of Legal Medicine. It's all her books. Yeah. But it's named after him. Cool. And she gets to stay involved. It's phrased in a way that I would love to keep offering things to the department, but everyone understands she gets a say in what's happening here. Mm -hmm. They're a little skeptical. This is a huge undertaking. They don't think it can actually happen. Creating an entirely new department. Mm -hmm. Even with that much money, they just aren't sure this is going to happen. And then she offers one extra piece of information, which is, oh, by the way, one more thing. 
I will not be donating any more money to Harvard <laughs> unless you do this. Aha! Money talks. So, they agree. The Department of Legal Medicine is founded, and in its first year, the department involved itself in 56 cases. Wow. And 13 of those cases, they discovered evidence that completely changed the legal trajectory of those cases. Wow. Nine homicides, in quotes, were found to actually be accidents, and all charges dropped. Wow. And four accidents were ruled actually homicides. Amazing. This is the reason she's doing this work. Her goals were to make sure that every person is treated fairly and has a thorough, independent, and scientific death investigation, which had not been done. The coroner system historically had been corrupt, indifferent. The dead had been exploited. It basically comes down to human dignity. And, and she felt that every person should be respected in a dignified way. She's fascinated with the stories and the bodies and all of this, but at the heart of all of it for her is innocent people are being hanged hmm. or electrocuted for murders they did not commit, that no one committed. This total lack of interest and skill is costing innocent lives. Wow. And letting murderers go free. But the main concern for her was innocent people are being executed for crimes that never occurred. Hmm. So in the first year of its existence, her department is already proving the worthwhileness of the yeah, project. that must have been so gratifying. And once she had her mind on something, she was really indomitable. She was a steamroller and nothing would keep her from what she wanted to do. And these were all things that she came to a realization on her own. There was no book to pick up and see, how do I do this? And she realized that in order to move towards a a medical model, medical examiner system, you need to reform the laws, you need to increase the manpower, and you need to train the police. And so she's worked at each one of these things. You need to change state laws to abolish the office of coroner and the coroner's inquest. Uh, in many cases, this is very complicated and time consuming. You need to change the state constitution. But she was a tireless, she was a lobbyist, she was an activist in, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, New Hampshire and Maryland and DC and Virginia and Oklahoma. She put her money where her mouth is. Literally, she spent equivalent to $3.4 million to make sure that there was an academic medical program at Harvard Medical School, the first one in the United States. As the department becomes bigger and more prominent, People are very interested in this. Suddenly, this is the wave of the future. There's constant pushback, of course, but for medical examiners, for aspiring police detectives, this is a great way to give yourself credibility. This mm. is a great way to make yourself the expert in the room. And 
Frances Gillespie Lee is involved at every level. She is working with police. She's now giving trainings and workshops. The department isn't just training the students in the Harvard Medical School. They are offering twice a year workshops to district attorneys, medical examiners, police officers, anyone who wants to sign up can come and take this two-week training and learn the basics of forensic medicine cool. from Francis Glessner Lee, along with all of these other people. She's creating materials for all of these trainings. She is innovating new ways to do this because no one's ever thought of it before. They are trying to do training on ballistics. How huh. do you tell what kind of a weapon made this wound? Interesting. Well, we need something that students can look at and see. So she commissions these dozens of plaster panels that are simulated gunshot wounds in skin, Ooh. showing all of the different, here is what a Mauser oh, would look wow. like, here's what, and all of them perfectly artistically rendered so students can wow. identify different gunshot wounds. Clever. She's using art to make science possible. Love it. At every point, she was using the skills that she had to solve the immediate problem. And then, of course, her most famous achievement. We need something to teach people. How do you teach crime scene investigation? How do you teach somebody to look? And that's a really difficult educational objective. She, all these years, has still been puzzling over the problem McGrath gave her in the hospital. How do you get people to see? How can you train people how to investigate a crime scene when there's 250 students in a workshop? Mm. You can't go visit crime scenes. And you can't guarantee that there will just happen to be crime scenes available yeah. during the week of the workshop. So, she begins to create... Nutshell deaths. Nutshell deaths. <laughs> what she calls the nutshell studies of unexpected death. These are eventually 20 tiny models of the scene of an unexplained death. They are dollhouse rooms <sighs> with death scenes. Amazing. How tiny? Like on a scale of one inch to one foot. Wow. They are the most fascinating, macabre, gruesome, beautiful, wow. intricate things you have ever seen. Cool. They are precisely replicated death scenes on such perfect detail that students can actually solve what happened mm. from this room. The clues are all there. Oh, that's awesome. And you awesome. can solve it from the room. Ah! I love that these still exist. Amazing. Bruce Goldfarb was generous enough to give me a Zoom tour ah. during our interview of the, of the exhibits, and I was absolutely, completely wigging out. But there's lots of photos on our website, but there's also a link to a virtual tour with 360-degree views. You can go inside the Oh, my the gosh. Rooms. It's and incredible. you could solve them? I, actually, I, I need you to look at some of these pictures while we're talking about it. Okay. Because I can't overemphasize how incredible these are. Okay, so I'm pulling it up. <gasps> no way. What? Each one of these offers a different unexpected death. 
that they can investigate. It looks like a suicide. Is it a suicide? Was this an accident? Was this a murder? This is incorporating things like which direction do the footprints go through the blood? Notice the water splashes next to the sink. What does oh that tell gosh. you about what happened on the other side of the room? <gasps> Look at the detail of this. Ooh, it's grisly. It's, it's like cute, it's, yeah, grisly. it's upsetting. Yeah, it's it's a very upsetting <laughs> mix of incredibly beautiful artistry and deeply yeah. upsetting, like, gruesome. Here's a blood spatter death. Woman hanging from the rafters. Mm -hmm. Underneath her, a chair knocked over and a ton of papers scattered around, handwritten. So she made like a replica of. Of every single paper and every single paper. Oh, amazing. things you can't even see the backside of things. Look, are there's a doll replica of a doll sitting on a yeah, on a rocking chair. She was. She Ooh. would go to any lengths to find these things. <gasps> this is so huge wild. amounts of money. Like that quilt. It's like yeah. hand stitched and she hand stitched oh my the gosh. quilt. She hand paints the wallpaper at tiny scale. The level of detail is mind blowing. There are working mouse traps. Wow. She shrunk down the front page of a newspaper and then has no a way. plate. Oh my god. Created like a print plate to have this actually printed at a newspaper office at one inch scale. That's amazing. For the scene. I mean, I've never heard of such an incredibly creative and uh, educational use for miniatures. I mean, I know yeah. the world of miniatures is such a big and thriving world and such a cool thing to create, but to use yeah, your to... love of miniatures. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and of course, for me, team. this is just the perfect, you know, as the, I was deeply devoted to mm -hmm. making dollhouse furniture, very elaborate furniture made out of toothpaste boxes and, you know, tiny little pieces of tinfoil. Yeah. And that and murder mysteries yeah. all in the same thing. It's amazing the amount of work she's putting into the... She's hand-sewing all the clothing. And this is during World War II. So it is very mm. difficult to get a hold of things. It takes her a year and a half to find a toy car the right size for this <laughs> car crash scene that she's trying to make. Wow. She's spending years on some of these. And she will not settle for anything less than perfection. The most illuminating story to me is that she needed quarter-inch hinges for the door for one of these scenes, and the only ones available were like three-eighths. Okay. And so she is shaving them down wow. to be the perfect size because she will not tolerate anything <laughs> less than perfect. Okay. <laughs> and these, again, these are not necessary for the mystery, right? It, you, the hinges are not integral to the death. The hand-painted label that she's making for the beer bottle. Wow. These are because it needs to be correct. And so this is her perfectionism, her obsessiveness. But also, she knows her audience. These are hard-boiled cops. These are medical men. These can't be toys. Mm. If she's going to be taken seriously with this, they have to be perfect. And so they are. Yeah. And the men totally enter into the spirit of the thing. They absolutely are captivated by these. For and sure. they take it 
totally seriously. Yeah. There's no one laughing at this. Now, something else she's doing with these that might not be immediately obvious to us, and I'm sure was not obvious to the men that were using them. These rooms are not just training you how to investigate crimes. They are shaking your preconceptions of whose crimes are worthy of being investigated. Ooh. These are not elite deaths. Ah. These are low-class, working-class slums. There are sex workers. These are people in poverty. Wow, great point. These dead bodies are not people who would have usually had their deaths investigated. Yeah, like I'm looking at a They're... woodsman's cabin here, and it's yeah. just this tiny little These are not place. cases that would have been given any attention or time. Wow. And just by choosing these scenes as the ones to make them spend hours and hours and hours investigating, yeah. she is shifting the mindset of what this work is for, who this work is for, uh. who is allowed to matter, whose deaths need to be investigated, who needs to be seen as worthy of this attention. Awesome. It's a huge social change that she's doing without ever saying a single word. Wow. She had the skill set. She had these artistic abilities. You know, she had these powers of persuasion. Her whole life had been raised in this sort of social situation where you have all these heterogeneous people uh, of various backgrounds interacting and exchanging ideas. And uh, that was exactly what she applied to the homicide seminars and the whole field. It's basically 1940s virtual reality. They're the closest thing you can get to actually visiting the scene. And they are used to train generations of police officers, medical examiners, everyone interested in learning this skill. The entire department will use these, but other people will fly in from all over the country huh. to be trained on these nutshell studies. Like for how long? For decades, for generations. Wow. In fact, the reason that these are housed at the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office and not in an art museum somewhere yeah. is because they are still used to train investigators really? to this day. I was just wondering why they're not in the Smithsonian or something. Yeah. They travel and they'll tra you'll see them in traveling exhibits occasionally, but they're still used because they are still one of the most effective ways to train people to do this work. Wow. I love it. Her skills and her passion have finally translated into the ultimate, unique expression of her art and her beliefs. Yeah. Her miniatures will save lives. I love it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So she created 20 of these in her lifetime. Two have since been destroyed by water damage, flood. 18 are still at the medical examiner's office. Um, you can still go see them. Wow. They are getting a lot more attention these days. People are starting to interact with Francis Glessner Lee's vision in new and interesting ways. The University of Wisconsin Parkside has created a full-size version of two of Lee's models. Okay, like a... They've taken the model and made a stage set, essentially. And they're 
photos on our website of Bruce Goldfarb sitting in the room that he is the creator of. That's wild. It messes with my brain. I don't know. It's doing something super meta that I can't identify yet. Yeah. it, It really cool freaks my brain out in a very exciting way. It's amazing. They are now recreating another one this year. They they broke down the dark bathroom. I begged them to keep it, and they couldn't. This one they're keeping, and next they're already planning what to do next year. They're going to do another diorama. Their goal is to create a collection of life-size dioramas of the Nutshell Studies. Someone needs to write a play of the murders <laughs> of the scene oh, in obviously. that room. Yep. Art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life, imitates art. She was made a police captain. She was 66 years old. Everything that she did was in the last few decades of her life. Most of this work is done in a room in her home in the mountains of New Hampshire. Uh, This is a family estate where she's lived mostly after her divorce. She lives here. Um, It's called The Rocks. It it starts as a summer cottage and becomes eventually a 20-building estate. She also had a number of... uh, She had heart problems, broke bones frequently. She had several heart attacks. She was losing her vision, losing her hearing. Towards the end, she had this massive hearing aid that she had to hold up to people to yell at her. This is just another little marker of why I love her so much. Toward the end of her life, she finally moves out of this home that she's lived in half of her life, this elaborate estate, into a tiny purple trailer home. She buys a brand new super modern trailer home. Wow. Puts it up on the farm. She has windows looking out over her favorite view. She can move around easily without her walker because everything is small and close together. Oh so my she gosh. She can hang onto furniture. She got to live in a miniature house with miniature everything. <gasps> oh, I never even thought of that. <laughs> she just like she downsized. She moved into a miniature. Yeah. Oh. Every tiny, everything she needs, but tiny version. And she lives in this little purple trailer. Well, and I love that that's it's purple. Delightful. Yeah. For the last years of her life. Wow. This multi-millionaire, one of the richest women in America, lives in a purple trailer. What home. a lady. Wow. It's still there and it's a working farm. When they donated it to the state of New Hampshire. It was a condition there always be a crop in the fields. The crop now is Christmas trees. So if anyone listening has ever bought a Christmas tree from the rocks in New Hampshire, you bought a Christmas tree from Francis Glessner Lee's farm. Ah, how cool. She died in 1962 of cancer. She was on the official staff of Harvard until she died. Her work changes the legal and medical fields of the United States forever. Wow. It brings who knows how many murderers to justice. It saves untold lives. 
it gives us an entirely new subgenre of television. <laughs> it's hard to think of somebody wow. who made a bigger influence in the world. Amazing. So she she got her wish. I keep thinking about how you can speak truth to power, but she like made a dollhouse to power. Yeah. <laughs> she crafted to power. Yeah. I love her. She's in my dinner party list. <laughs> oh yeah, you guys are kindred spirits for sure. I am immensely tempted to make a murder dollhouse. <laughs> Do it. Do it. She's wow. incredible. She's an, such an incredible woman. The book is fantastic. This is, you know, 1% of the stuff mm -hmm. that we could talk about, about her, about James McGrath, about the entire field. It is a really fascinating book. I really highly recommend. As amazing as these dioramas are, and I love them, it's a really almost a parenthetical thing that she did in the scope of her life. She created a field of medical practice from the ground up that did not exist. The reason why forensic medicine happened when it did is because of her. Huge thanks to our guest, Bruce Goldfarb. On our website at whatshernamepodcast.com, you'll find links to the virtual tour of the Nutshell Studies, lots of photos, links, resources, links to Bruce Goldfarb's website and his book, and lots more. Music for this episode was provided by Brian Bolger, Kevin McLeod, Audionautics, Esther Abrami, Amanda Setlick-Wilson, and the MIT Symphony Orchestra. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does make a huge difference in helping us find new listeners. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazil Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>